Good morning, how y'all doing? It's good to see you here this morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 19. Let me say something right out of the gate. Uh, so we're learning more and more about this room. And if you look around this room, uh, at the, on the top half of the walls, as you look around, uh, you can see some material that's pushed against the wall there. That's like soundproofing material. And what that makes this room, uh, it makes this room really quiet, all right? Which means when we're in the service, any little bit of noise travels through the room really, really quickly, all right? And so all I want to say is this, that, hey, there's times where people need to, you know, you need to excuse yourself from the service and maybe go take care of some stuff. Just keep that in mind, that, that noise travels really quickly and can be distracting in this room, all right? Just needed to put that out there. Again, glad you're here, Acts chapter 19, and that's where we're going to be. And I want to say uh, this about our students. Our students have been uh, in a, kind of a Disciple Now weekend called Deeper this weekend, and they've been in the Word. Uh, Austin Rammel's down here on the front row. He's been the guest speaker this weekend. Can you all let him know how much we appreciate him being here? And so they've just been inundated with gospel truth this weekend. And now our prayer is that the Spirit will take that, that it will take root, and that we'll see fruit produced in their lives, in their lives, in the leaders' lives. And I appreciate Brandon. I appreciate his team and all their help to put together a great weekend. All right, so as we're walking through Acts, this has happened, um, I'm sure, hopefully, already as we've walked through this study. Uh, but here in Acts chapter 19, I'm telling you this morning, there's a really good chance you're going to be challenged to remove some things from your life that don't belong. To remove some things from your life that do not belong there. And that's not always easy. That takes humility. And uh, don't be like the dad who complained uh, about his family and the amount of time that his family spent in front of the television. Too much time, right? The kids uh, watch cartoons instead of doing their homework. Uh, his wife preferred uh, HGTV instead of doing a housework. And so he called a family meeting. He's like, listen... I'm tired of this, all right? This thing is sucking the life out of our family. Like you're not, do, you're doing things, you're, you're in front of this TV and you're neglecting things that matter. You know what matters? Us being together, all right? So I've had it. I'm making the decision right now that as soon as the football season is over, I'm canceling our cable, all right? So in all seriousness, as we're all going to be confronted by the gospel to make some changes and to remove some things, it's going to be real easy to make some excuses, it's going to be real easy to uh, fall to the temptation to hold tighter to whatever you feel the Spirit of God showing you doesn't belong. You're going to feel tempted to look at other people's idols in their life and not your own. And what our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will work in all of our hearts this morning and that will respond in a way that honors Him. So let's stand. Bible's open. Acts chapter 19. Beginning to read in verse... Uh, let's begin in verse 17. This became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who, uh, who were now believers came confessing and divulging practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them all and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So where the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events... Uh, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through uh, Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also go see Rome. And having, uh, and, have, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. But at that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way uh, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, uh, and it brought no little business uh, to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see 
And here, that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, that this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. Now, you would think anybody who's intelligent enough to run a business would stop and think about that statement a little bit. And there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come under disrepute, but also, uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be uh, deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia would, uh, in the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians, who Paul, uh, his companions, in, in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples who would not, uh, would not let him, and even some of the uh, Asiarchs. That's pretty cool that he had built friendships with people who were pagan and lost. They didn't want him to go in, who were his friends. Uh, and they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and another for uh, the, the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33, some of the crowd promoted Alexander, whom the Jews put forth, or put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for two hours straight, think about that, two hours straight, they cried out one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Have a seat as I pray. Father, I pray that this morning, by the power of the gospel and the spirit at work inside of us, Lord, that we would smash idols for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we looked at uh, this chapter last week we're kind of jumping into where we left off you'll remember that paul has come into ephesus he's done what he's done as he comes into all of those cities and just gospel saturation gospel saturation preaching the word preaching jesus and he set up shop there in ephesus in the school of tyrannus and there he's preaching the gospel and the gospel goes out and as the gospel goes out people come in but as the gospel goes out there's also another reaction so we're going to look at two last week we looked at two reminders about gospel advancement this week we're going to look at two responses to gospel gospel advancement. And the first one is this, when the gospel is advanced, when the gospel goes out, there's going to be some people who receive it with a, with a heart that's receptive and repentant. All right. Receptivity and repentance is the first response we want to look at. Now, last week there was a, a super memorable scene that we looked at. Do you remember that? The sons of Sceva, they literally, they're playing games with demonic forces and literally get the clothes be, beat off of them. All right. So, uh, Alistair Begg, as I said last week, called them the, uh, the, the seven, um, streakers of Sceva. All right. So they're running through town. It's embarrassing. But what's, what's even crazier is that the town, you would think that what would be most memorable to them is these guys running through the town all beat up and bloodied without their clothes on because they just got beat up by a demon possessed man. But really stuck with the folks is what the demon possessed man said before he beat him up the demon possessed man said jesus i know in other words we are very familiar with the name of jesus kind of the implication is we don't you know we're not we're not all about messing with him right now paul i recognize so we know that name but who are you and it's like the eyes of that town and people who had not yet received the gospel their eyes go from the sons of Sceva to the star of the story who is jesus christ and people get saved as they through the power of this, or the, as they see the powerful name of Jesus demonstrated in this episode, they, they really are, are coming to grips with this, that the name of Jesus is nothing to be trifled with. 
They lean in and they listen to the gospel and they receive it. And in verse 17, it says that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So more people are saved. The name of Jesus is extolled. The King James Version actually uses the word magnified instead of extolled, which I I actually like that better. When you look at the original language, I think that's closer to what's there. Um, But what does it mean for a believer? Maybe we've heard that we sing songs about magnifying Jesus. We sing songs about magnifying the Lord. What does it mean when a believer magnifies Jesus in their life? Well, the Bible teacher, author, pastor John Piper years ago, I I read uh, what he wrote on this and it really, really helped me get a grip on what I think this means and what we think this means. He explains that when we think about something being magnified, that we often think about it as like magnifying glass, microscope, telescope. And we kind of, we tend to think, we make the mistake of thinking that all of those magnify an object in the same way, but they really don't. See, we can think of a of magnifying Jesus the same way that a, a magnifying glass magnifies an object or a microscope takes something has the ability to take something microscopic, right? Small, and to make it bigger than it really is. Jesus doesn't need our help making him bigger than he is. All right, that's not what we're doing when we're magnifying him. A telescope, Piper says, gives you a, a better understanding of what magnifying Jesus means. It doesn't take something small and make it look bi- bigger. It takes something already really big and massive, a planet, Right, galaxies, something so big that it's hard for our small minds to even begin to understand and wrap themselves around, and it brings it into view so that our little eyes and our minds can comprehend what is there. And that's more of what it means to magnify God. So think about it. When you're born again, when you're raised to new life, God's Holy Spirit comes into your life, opens your spiritually blind eyes to begin to see how magnificent and marvelous and beautiful and all-powerful and majestic that He is, how loving He is, how awesome He is, how marvelous He is. All of those things come into view. And where you find the Lord being extolled, where you find the Lord being magnified, where you find people fixing their gaze on the character of Jesus Christ, you're also going to find those people dealing with sin in their life. When you step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and get a glimpse by the power of the gospel of who he is, your appetites start changing. And that's what we see happening in the lives of these Ephesian believers. The appetites of their hearts are being turned on to things that please their new master, and they're being turned off to things that don't. And you begin a journey with Christ, and you begin a journey of loving Jesus more and growing more sick in your stomach of the things that you once loved. Things you once loved now are going to be things that you're going to grow to hate. It's like how some of y'all, maybe it could have been 15, 20 years ago, that you got food poisoning. Have you ever, anybody ever got food poisoning? You, it, may, it may have been a type of food that you loved, that you really enjoyed eating. And whatever that was, maybe it was shrimp, maybe it was eggs, right? It could have been 20 years ago. And if you get food poisoning, like you, you're like, I'm going to die. Like you, you feel like your life is ending, Right? And it could be 20 years ago and you walk into a room and that same food, all it has to be, they they could be cooking it and the smell of it. You're like, no, I'm going. Just burn the whole house down. I don't want to be here. (laughs) When Rebecca and I started dating, I think I may have shared this with you before after a couple months. By the way, I don't know if you know this, just a little little, uh, time for you to get to know your pastor a little bit. All right. Um, When Rebecca and I have known each other since we were like three or four years old. I don't know if you know that. Um, so her dad is a music pastor. My dad's a lead pastor, and they've served in the same churches together for almost 35 years. All right, so we, we've, known each, we've seen each other multiple times a week and been around each other multiple times a week for our entire lives, pretty much, all right? And, uh, but, you know, 
we, uh, she caught my eye late in high school, you know, in a different way, right? So I was like, hmm, yeah, well, let's go on a date. And so we started dating. And, um, and, and so uh, you getting into that relationship, we had that first, uh, I had that first invitation to go to her parents' house to have like a meal with their family as like the boyfriend. I was like, oh man, this is important. So I made sure I was, uh, you know, dressed right. I made sure all of my, you know, um, you know, my manners were on point. I thought through everything and, and, I, and I walk in and we sit down and, and there's not a lot of food that I don't like. I like a lot of food, but there's a few items that I don't like. And one of those is black olives. Don't ask why. I just do not like black olives. My wife loves black olives. It causes a little bit of contention when we're ordering pizza. Let's not get into that. All right. So, but I uh, don't also, also really don't like, I, I, I hate rice pilaf because, rice pilaf, because along the way somewhere I got sick, really sick after eating rice pilaf and vowed to never touch it again. And true story, you can ask Rebecca, I, I, I walk in, make sure my manners are on point. Uh, I, I make sure that, you know, I, I'm thinking through everything and here her mom comes with a pot, puts it in the middle of the table and says, I hope you like rice pilaf. In my mind, it's like every, the world just stopped. In my mind, I'm like, no. On the outside, I'm like, yeah, who doesn't like rice pilaf? Yeah. You know, fill up my plate. My prayer life got super strong really quick. It's like, dear Lord, help me keep this down. Dear Lord, help. Just, just can you supernaturally change my taste buds to make this rice peel off taste like ice cream donuts? Something. And I put that stuff down into my stomach. It's a miracle of God that I kept it down. Like three or four years later, I told her, and she's like, Bonnie, why don't you tell me that? I didn't care. I was fixed to a sandwich. Why'd you go through all that? All right, we laughed about it. It was not a laughing matter in the moment. I wanted nothing to do with it. Listen, when you extol or magnify Christ, it turns you into a spirit-filled, sin-sick follower of Jesus Christ. There's some things that you know do not fit with your new walk, do not belong in your life, are not part of your new identity, things that don't belong and that you glad... In light of who He is... As you fix your gaze on Him, you gladly throw those things to the curb of your life because they don't please the Lord of your life. And that's what's happening to these new believers in Ephesus. In verse 19 it says, And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them. And it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's amazing. 50,000 pieces. That's around six, or a scholar thinks that's around six or seven million dollars today. That's a lot of money. It's interesting. No yard sale. They're not, hey, we can do a lot with this. Let's sell this stuff on eBay. They're, they're, they're so sick when it comes to that sin in their life that they know displeases their new master. They're like, get it out. We want nothing to do with it because when Christ is magnified, listen, when Christ is magnified in your heart, nothing compares to the worth of knowing him and following him and you will release the things that don't please him no matter what it costs you. This is one response that we see here in this city. But that's not always the response we get when we preach the gospel, is it? There's a second response that we see here. And it's completely opposite. It's not receptive and repentant. It's repulsed and resistant. This riot happens as it begins to pick up in verse 21. This is three years after Paul first comes into Ephesus. So it jumps ahead pretty a pretty good amount of time right here. In verses 21 22, it indicates that for us where Paul's making preparations. It says that the Spirit's leading him to, to travel across the world. There's several places he wants to go. He wants to land back in Jerusalem and take a, an offering that he would collect there that he saw Antioch, Church of Antioch do. And he wants to kind of replicate that and, and continue that. 
And then he wants to eventually get over to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel across the known world. And it's interesting that the enemy waits until right before he's about to leave to launch this attack. Sometimes the enemy will attack ministries and attack gospel advancement at the forefront, at the beginning. And is it not true? Sometimes the enemy will wait till something grows and after it flourishes. And man, if he can, if he can create an implosion there, it can create even more damage as that, as that thing comes down. And so he launches this attack through an accusation made by a silversmith in Ephesus known as Demetrius. It says he made silver shrines. So evidently he, he led a guild of craftsmen there who made these, uh, not, not little images of the goddess Artemis. They're actually replicas of the temple. All right, so that was one of the, they were very proud of that temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, made with white marble. It's huge. It was four times bigger than the Pantheon in Athens, made with white marble and inlaid gold. The temple was big. It was a big deal because the, the worship of false gods and the worship of Artemis was a big deal. Demetrius says at the end of verse 27, it says that all of Asia and the world worshipped her. It sounds like maybe he's exaggerating, he's trying to stir up the crowd, but he's actually not because archaeologists have actually uncovered 27 sites in the ancient, that, were, uh, that were built or that were uh, up in the ancient Mediterranean world that were sites where they worshipped this, this goddess Artemis. But you know what? There, were, there was a bazillion gods like that that they worshipped in that ancient world. There were thousands and thousands and thousands in that polytheistic pagan world that those people worshipped, that they looked to, that they devoted their lives to, that they sacrificed an unbelievable amount of things in their life to. Why? Listen, they basically believe this. You do the right kind of song and dance and chants and rituals and sacrifices to those idols. They kind of saw it like this. You put the right kind of change in. You do the right kind of thing. You sacrifice the right amount of stuff. And you pull that crank. You put the change in and you pull the crank enough. What's going to happen is the result of that, what's going to come popping out of that machine is your, your fields are going to be full of crops. Your business is going to be fruitful. Your bank account's going to be stable. You're going to get a nice big family. Right? You're going to get a, a, a nice big family and you need a big family then. Like that was something you were proud of in your community because who's going to run the business, right? Who's going to run the farm? That was your retirement plan, right? Today, we don't have that today, right? We, we take care of our kids and we get older and they put us in a nursing home, right? That's going to happen to me one day, I know, right? We pay for their college. We, you know, help them with their science projects. We help them get their first cars. We, you know, pay for the wedding, right? And then they're, at the end, they're like, go play checkers or play uh, Scrabble with Susie in the recreation room. You know what I mean? I'm just venting a little bit. I just think we may need to go back to biblical times. I'm going to be like, y'all need to put me on payroll. Y'all need to let me live in one of those rooms up in your house in that community. All right, anyway, let's move. But they would construct false gods and then they do a song and a dance. Why? Because it was a result, a desired result that they were chasing. All right. Basically, all that, that, that whole ancient false god worship culture system was this, was this man-made system that was used ultimately for people to try in their own strength to achieve certain levels. And this really what it was at the heart of it was they were trying to uh, achieve certain levels of approval and power and comfort and love and acceptance. All those things that the, that the soul, the human soul aches for. And what Paul is doing in preaching the gospel is he's pointing out that your gods aren't real and they're not going to deliver what you're looking at them to deliver to your life. That they're always going to overpromise it, that they're always going to underdeliver it. Always. 
And Paul keeps preaching this truth, keeps confronting their foolishness, keeps lifting up and preaching the crucified, exalted Savior over and over and over again and preaching a Savior who is alive, a King who is alive, a God who is worthy of your worship, and a God who will actually satisfy the aching of your soul that you want to be satisfied. And people were believing that gospel. Again, receptivity and repentance. And you know what the result of that was? His souvenir shop might close down. Because they don't need to buy little shrines anymore. And he doesn't like that. So he gets his buddies together and he's like, hey, listen, guys, everybody right here, you know, I'm going to have to close my souvenir shop. People keep listening to him and turn into this living God and, and, and believing this gospel that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we can't live and died the death we deserve to die. And he rose from the dead. Because they're turning away from worshiping Artemis. And so he kind of tries to argue that we need to protect her and, and her honor. You know, but really this is about his money. His money is his idol. And this is shaking the cage of his idol called money. So he gets his boys together. He's like, listen, they're going to close down my souvenir shop. Bill, they're going to close down your I Love Artemis t-shirt stand. This is going to ruin all of our lives. And so we need to do something. And what we learn right here is this. Isn't this true about idolatry? When our idols are challenged by truth, the idols will always push back. The idols will always push back. And the enemy is really good at convincing people in the face of truth to desperately keep holding onto those false gods who do not have the power to hold onto you. To convince you that they can give you something that they can't give you. So he creates a stir and he gets all these people stirred up and they all pile in there and they're screaming, great is Artemis, we love Artemis, yes we do, we love Artemis, how about you, give me an A, and they're cheering. And it's loud, just imagine a stadium full of people, two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it's really sad that these people are so hostile, passionate, fired up about something that's absolutely false. And as we look back on the pages of Scripture, what we can do is we can see ancient cities like Ephesus. And we can see all of these temples, we can see all these altars, all these idols. And doesn't it feel primitive? Doesn't it feel like there's a disconnect? And yet here's the truth. Idolatry is just as prevalent today than it's ever been idolatry is just as prevalent it may not be organized it is somewhat if you look along in our city you can kind of get an idea of the idols that we worship but it's not as organized as it was in the ancient world with all of these just right out in the open all of these false gods all of these temples hey but make no mistake down the streets of the human heart there are idols listen there are temples to false gods False gods that absorb people's hearts and imaginations and what many people look to to find meaning and purpose and happiness. And when the gospel is presented, a common response that we find are people are repulsed by it and resistant to it and reject it. And even hostile at times towards it. This is a picture right here, an illustration of how people continue to respond to the gospel. Don't you see what it really is? It's their idolatry pushing back against the truth. Because to bow to Jesus as your Savior and your supreme ruler of your life, it means to lose control. It means to step off the throne of your heart. It means to put a match to the altar of comfort or power, or security or success or pleasure or even religion. Wherever you've bowed your knee to looking for the rest and salvation for your soul that you can't find in those places. You know you can only find it in Jesus. And so you're turning your back on those idols. And those idols in the moment of being confronted by that truth don't like it. And those idols are good at keeping us convinced that if we just keep hitting the pinata of those gods, whether it's religion, 
financial security, whether it's worldly pleasure, that if I just hit it enough, then eventually, boom, I'm gonna hit, I'm gonna hit it right, and I'm gonna find security and happiness, and I'm gonna be able to breathe easy, and I'm not gonna worry anymore, and I'm not gonna be gripped with anxiety. The enemy is a pro at convincing us to stay in that lane. And here's what the gospel does. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're, you, you may even feel mad at what I'm saying. That Jesus Christ comes to this earth. He's the Lord over all creation. He wants to be the Lord of your life. And what he does is, is he speaks the voice of truth in the middle of all of that noise, in the middle of all this great as Artemis. He speaks through all the noise of our, our, our idolatry. And he says this, Jesus says, isn't that exhausting? Isn't that game exhausting? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. The bottom line is this, it's not that complicated. Your soul is thirsty. You keep running to the cisterns of this world. You keep picking up glasses that look like they're filled with water. Things in this world that say will satisfy your soul and put it to your lips and it's warm salt water that will only make you more thirsty and leave you more unfulfilled. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Bow your knee to Him as King. Let Him sit down on the throne of your life and you find the rest and the salvation and the satisfaction that your sinful soul aches for. Come to Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Let me say this. Isn't it awesome that once you come to Jesus that just everything's fine from there on out? Isn't it awesome when you come and you drink from the well of living water that you never go back out to those other wells and try to drink from them anymore? Of course, that's not what happens. Even after coming here, even after coming to Christ, it's crazy, but we do it. We're prone to wander. The Bible calls us sheep for a reason. We need a shepherd. And as good as our shepherd is, isn't it interesting that we're still at times drawn to go back out to the altars of this world, to the false gods of this world, to the wells of this world that we know can't fulfill us. And what we're tempted to do is this. When we get away from the gospel, here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to say, I need Jesus and. See, what the gospel does is it gets you to a place where you say, I need Jesus. And what our hearts, even after we come to Christ, are prone to do is to add to that. I need Jesus and. Yeah, I know what you're saying cognitively. I I need Jesus, but every believer in this room is either being tempted to right now or you are making efforts to right now build another temple in your heart and to give place to an idol that doesn't belong. And if those idols are going to be dealt with, listen, let's deal with them this morning, but listen, if they're going to be dealt with, we first got to be honest that they're there. This is a place where you can acknowledge that you have idols in your life. The man speaking to you right now, this week as I'm studying this, God's revealing to me idols in my heart that don't belong. This has to be a... Think about that bonfire, right? Where they're all taking their, their Harry Potter wizardry spell books and they're all throwing them in the fire and they're burning them up. What are they... It says they all came together in the sight of all. Scholars believe the way that's written that that's not, the only, the, that's not only people who got saved that day. That's probably guys who had come to Jesus, been baptized, and had probably had been hiding those books. And here they are bringing that out into the light. Right? With a community of believers. Because that's what a community of believers should be. It's a place where it's okay to not be okay. It's a wonderful picture of people not hiding in their sin right there. We don't have to pretend that we're more holy than we really are. In fact, that's a very dangerous game. 
So Halloween is a couple months away. I think it's actually on a Sunday this year. And we don't make, we don't make like a super big deal, about it, big deal about it. I know some of you maybe just shut the light off and shut down the house. I get that. You go do something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. I kind of changed my mindset on that uh, several years ago when it dawned on me that it's the one night of the year that like hundreds of lost people show up at your doorstep voluntarily, right? So try to think about it a little more evangelistically. I'm not going to be that guy who holds out like a bowl of only gospel tracks, like no candy kids. Here you go. You know, I'm not going to be that guy. Like here's some hot tamale boxes where I've written Turner Burnley on the side. Here you go. Happy Halloween kids. <laughs> but it really is. It really is a great, I just want to encourage you again. It's, it's something, you know, you do what you feel like you need to do, but it is a great night to get to know neighbors. I've gotten to know neighbors' names and even had gospel conversations on those nights. And our kids, you know, we don't get into it, uh, you know, too much. Our kids dress up, we go around and get candy. You know, you can judge me. Jesus sees you in your heart if you're judging me right now. Make them pay dad tax. You know what I'm talking about, dads? Pay your dad tax. It went up this year. It's been a hard year, right? They're going to be paying a lot of dad tax this year. Listen, but regardless of whether or not you dress up for Halloween, regardless of whether or not you participate in the workplace costume party, listen, for some, every Sunday is like going through Halloween. But we get out of our car, man, and people, hey, how was your week? It was great. How you doing? Blessed and highly favored, amen, how you doing? When we know, we say that at times and we don't mean it. What's really sad is when we come into the service and we actually try to keep the costume on in the presence of a holy God who created us, who can see into our hearts and pretend like we can hide the temples that we've created from Him. Start with a willingness to admit, you know what? I have drifted from I need Jesus to I need Jesus and. That I need Jesus, but you know what? If I'm really honest with myself, I really think that I also need that extra zero on my bank account balance to really feel like my soul can rest and feel secure. I need Jesus, but I also need my flesh to be injected with some worldly pleasure outside of the will and ways of God to find fulfillment. Cognitively, yes, I I believe and even believe it at a small level that Jesus, you're all that I need. But in my heart, I need that promotion to feel like I'm good enough and to feel like I'm really important. Notice that idolatry isn't necessarily always just bowing down to bad things. It can be. Whether it's substance abuse or living a promiscuous, sexually immoral lifestyle. That stuff needs to be chopped and chunked out of your life. But it often can be when you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. Where you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing and you look to that thing to give you what only God can give you. I need Jesus, but, but, but I also, I need Jesus and I need my family to look a certain way, my kids to grow up and attain a certain level of success and even live close to me in order for me to be happy and satisfied. I need Jesus and I also need that boyfriend, that girlfriend to deliver me from this loneliness. I need that Hallmark man to come sweep me off of my feet like in the movies that I can't wait till Christmas and see those Hallmark movies and just how that man treats that woman. I want a man like that. To make my, my heart feel warm and fluffy like that, like that hot chocolate that he gives her by that fire and they're looking at each other in googly eyes. I need Jesus, but I also need that. Listen, I ministered in the area of student ministry for 15 years. And in that time, I also spent time with uh, a lot of young adults as well. And let me tell you, I saw this a lot. Where you'd have a Christian young man or a Christian young woman 
who would say they love Jesus, but add an and to that. Single, and they'd say, I love Jesus, but yet they would construct a temple in their heart, and at the drop of a hat, they'd turn and start dating a non-Christian. And if you dug into it, if you began to talk to them and say, hey, you say you're a believer, you say you're a follower of Christ, do you, do you like the idea of you marrying somebody who doesn't share what's the number one passion in your life? No. Do you like the idea, do you want to marry somebody who's not going to raise your kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You ask them, hey, you're dating this guy. Do you, do you want the most influential force in the life of your kids, their earthly father, to be someone who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't love going to church, and doesn't love serving the church? See? No. Well, yeah. No. Here's the problem. You detest the thought of being alone so much that you'll push your convictions to the curb and you'll even try to convince yourself that what they need is a Christian young lady or a Christian young man to be in their life to help influence them in the right direction. And what you've really done is you have bowed to an idol. You've compromised simply because you have a heart that feels lonely. Hey, and there are ladies, there are men in this, in this room right now who bowed to that idol early on in life, and God can use things, God can use mess, God can use mistakes and turn it into things that are beautiful. But I guarantee if they're honest, they would look at you in the eyeballs and they'd say, listen, marry somebody who shares that same passion with you. And if you don't like that, if you're single, if you're young, wherever you're at, if you don't like what I just said, that may be your idol pushing back on truth. Maybe it's, I need Jesus, but I also need to keep up a certain look because of my vanity, I think that my look and my shape are going to make people love me more and value me more. It means health and fitness has become your idol. Hey, I need Jesus, but I also need Netflix to, ne- to medicate my heart and to medicate me because it, to, to make me feel numb, to forget about my anxiousness and boredom inside of me. Hey, I need Jesus, but I also need Facebook to notify me that I'm really liked. I need Jesus, but I also need my parents' approval. I need Jesus, but I also need people to approve of me and make me feel like I matter. What is that idol for you? Maybe it's a religious idol. Maybe you think, I I need Jesus, and I need to do some more stuff to get some religious scoring on the scoreboard because, you know, my past is still haunting me. Where do you say, I need Jesus and fill in the blank in order to be satisfied and joyful and content? And the question is, is what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? That in all of our hearts right now, even if we're believers, there's idols that God's word that right now have been exposed that you know you add to the other side of that and. I need Jesus and. What are you going to do about it? What we're going to talk about right here real quick is fighting sin, wrestling against sin, pursuing holiness, battling against sin. But I want us to always remember this, that we have to fight from an eternal perspective. Like, you've got to continuously, as a Christian, travel back to the future. Like that movie, right? Get in your DeLorean and go to the future. Because the future and the truth that's in the future that we know that we read in God's Word, He makes promises He can't break. It, it will impact the way that you live in the present. You know what you'll find? Glory and get in the future. You'll find 1 John 3, 2, where it says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. That should excite you. That should fill your heart up with gratitude. And that should put some spiritual fuel in your tank that there's coming a day where I will never have to repent again. 
There is coming a day where I will never have to deal with sin again. There's coming a day where I'll never have to smash another idol in my life again. Whatever your struggle is, lust, greed, selfishness, worry, they will, in Christ, they will not have the last word in your life. Jesus will. His victory is yours. That future is yours. Listen, that's not enough, though, to get down into the roots of these idols in the present. It helps. But it's not enough to get down. Here's the whole message right here. You want to know how you smash idols? Here it is. You need to drink down gospel truth into the recesses of your heart again and again and again until you're able to say, I need Jesus. You need to drink gospel truth down into the recesses of your heart until you're able to say, I need Jesus and nothing else. See, cognitively, even maybe with your heart a little bit, you believe that. But as it says in Mark 9, 24, do you remember the, the father there who brings his, his son with unclean spirit? He's, he's mute, he's deaf, and he, and he wants him to be healed. And he says this to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. See, you can have saving faith. You can, you can take the leap. You can be raised to new life. You can be in the family of God as an adopted son or daughter of God. New spirit. And yet at times, still not trust and believe in the gospel like you should. We need to believe gospel truth more. We need to believe more that Jesus alone satisfies with your money. You need to believe more that his promises are more trustworthy than a bunch of green paper. You need to believe more that his promises are more reliable than the promises of your money. His market never crashes. The Dow and his kingdom is fixed. You need to believe more that the treasures found in Christ are better than any treasures found in this world. You need to believe more that this that his agape love for you in Christ, his unconditional, never stopping love is better than the love that you're looking for to cure the loneliness in your heart in earthly relationships. You need to believe more that he's the creator of love, that his love is more faithful and more true and definitely more dependent than some hallmark romance. You need to believe more that his joy is better than the pleasure that you're chasing on a smartphone screen. You need to taste and believe and trust and experience that He is good and that He satisfies. You need to believe more that in Christ, you you deal with approval. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'll be very transparent with you. I struggle with this. With with, with man's approval. I I even struggle with it in my own home. It's so, it deceives me and it's, Sometimes it's tricky to even understand it. I'm doing it not even realizing it. Like I'm thinking of even with my, with my kids. And, you know, it's, it's on those days that I crush it as a dad. Think that I crush it as a dad. You know what I'm talking about, man? I play with my kids, man. We took them to the park. We went to the baseball park and hit, so took them to the skate park. We went and saw a movie. We had a WWF wrestling match in the middle of the house. Had a Nerf gun war. We took them. I spent time with them. We went to some fun places. And you know, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll tend to poke my head inside of their room and say, hey, what'd you think of today? Did you have fun? Yeah, we had fun. And I'll walk out of that room and go, that was more about me. Instead of taking an opportunity, listen, to, to speak words of life into my son, man, I saw the way you treated your brother today. Good job, man. I'm so proud to be your dad. I was in that moment with my, with my idolatrous heart worrying about what he thought about me. Instead of being the earthly father that he needed pouring into his life. And I care about what people think. 
I care about what you think. I care about what strangers think. And I think we all struggle with that, right? Anybody else with me? Okay, there's five of us in here who are with me right now, all right? Everybody else is like, I'm fully surrendered to Jesus. I'm good. No idols in my heart. I'm moving on. But you know what can help you is this, to believe more that in Christ you truly matter to the one whose opinion is the only one that really matters. You need to believe more that God's attention and affections are better than the praise of people. And if you can really drink that down in faith into the recesses of your heart, what what in Christ God thinks about you, what you'll find today, if that really gets down into you, if that really gets down into the recesses of your heart, if you drink deeply of that truth, what you're going to find is you're not going to waste one more minute of this day ruining your day about worried about what people think about you, people who don't even know you think about you because you know what God, who knows everything about you, thinks about you. He knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows it all and it's still declared what He thinks about you over your life because He sees you in Christ, which means what He says about Jesus Christ, He said about you. And what did He say about Jesus Christ? Christ, that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he looks over your life in Christ and he says the same thing about you. Believe that more and drink. Submerge yourself in the springs of the gospel. and Drink it down into the recesses of your heart. That's how idols are washed away. And the gospel takes us back to that place again that I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And then you know what you do? You go back to those things. Whether it's your family, whether it's family, work, sex, money. When you drink down the gospel into the recesses of your heart and your soul, you go back to those things that are created and you don't worship them. You actually see them as things that can be used and enjoyed and used for the glory of your Creator. Because he's your God. And whatever that thing was that you were worshiping, you know, if, if you can get all this aligned right and you can, you know, the power of the gospel today have some roots of your identity in Christ grow down deeper, what you can do is you can walk out of here and you can begin on a path to where whatever those things are that you're not worshiping, you're worshiping God and then you're using these things to worship and glorify him is what will happen is you'll find that if you ever lose those things, if you ever lose your money, if you ever lose something that's near and dear to you, that's created, whether it's a career, whatever it is, you'll find that you aren't devastated by it because you haven't lost the most important thing, and that's Jesus. You never lose him. Drink and be satisfied. Will you repent of your idolatry in your life this morning and receive those gospel truths? Well, at the end of this chapter, the city clerk stands up and basically says, we won't go through it all. Y'all need to shut up. You're rioting and there's courts that we can handle this in. And if y'all keep it up and keep all this loudness up, Rome's going to come down and shut us down. So everybody shut up and go back home. And they do. Paul wanted to go in and preach in the middle of the masses and he didn't have an opportunity. He packs up and he heads on. And that church in Ephesus keeps marching on, advancing the gospel in Ephesus and in that region of Asia. And God uses this church in a mighty way in that season and on the timeline of church history. What we learn in, in, in Acts chapter 19 is we see a group of disciples who simply love Jesus, are passionate about his word, and are serious about dealing with their own sin and confront people in their idolatry and how that flips the city upside down. Wouldn't it be awesome to see this community get flipped upside down like that? Here's my question. Why can't it happen 
to a church like this? It can. By loving Jesus, by being committed to gospel saturation, listen, by getting serious about the sin in our life, confessing it, repenting of it, by the power of the gospel, smashing idols. Let's pray.